You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, beginning in the first verse, I'm going to read this very brief psalm, and I'll give you as much background as I can so that the imagery we'll dig into will make as much sense as possible the first time through it. Now, this is in a collection of what are called the Psalms of Ascent, and you will see at the very, very th- first thing I'll read is the, the inscription above, the description, is a song of ascent. These were uh, the, the songs that were regularly uh, recited, sung, part of the liturgies of the, the, the people of Israel as they were making their way to one of the three primary feasts commanded to be observed in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. Now, what that means for them simply is uh, Jerusalem is, is like the mile-high city of the ancient Near East. Um, more realistically, it's the half-mile-high city. It's about 2,500 feet in elevation. But from anywhere else in the ancient Near East, it's one of the highest of those cities. And for the people who were scattered, the people who were living in their own tribes and, and different parts of the ancient Near East, as they would make the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate with their, kin, their kinsmen, they would make their way literally topographically up in elevation to the heights of what we will see here is Zion, the, the mountain of Zion, the height. Again, mountain, you're in South Dakota, you know mountain is, it's, it has quotes around it, right? Uh, and so, so you get this. This is the heights of the ancient Near East. But it was also not just a topographical or geographical ascent into a higher elevation. It also had spiritual meaning, that this was a high place, that this was a place that in, in some powerful sense, they participated in their bodies and the act of going up to meet with God. The place of Zion is regularly in the Old and New Testament referred to as this special place where God meets with his people. The place where for Christians, the city of Jerusalem, where we find that God came and was lifted up as the apostle in the gospel of John tells us. He was lifted up to die and to be resurrected. Where? In Zion, Jerusalem. So these were the, the, the psalms, these were the poems, these were the things they would have been singing or humming along the way, hence why they're probably short, oh, but they're also probably the liturgies of these feasts that they would come to celebrate, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of the Tabernacles or Boots, and then the Feast of the Passover. Man, don't ever try to do that from memory in front of a crowd of people. <laughs> I'm about to make one of the feast. You know what I'm talking about. You know the one, oh, it's the best one. So I'm going to read to us, the, think of this as, a, and also an application for this would be like the kinds of things we'll be humming and thinking, even on a Sunday morning. So if you're a believer, a Christian, you gather, as is the custom for the last 2,000 years, on the Lord's Day. Because on a Sunday morning a couple thousand years ago, something significant happened. And so if you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian in the room, I encourage you, listen in. This is, this is the language of faith, even of the Christian church, that even on a Sunday morning, I, I, <laughs> this, I, I know that what I'm about to say. I know how controversial it is and how it really feels. I know that on Sunday morning, for many of you, the thought of a joyful tune on the way to this place is like a, like a completely foreign concept uh, because Sunday morning happens to be maybe the most stressful and discouraging of every morning that you can imagine. That being said, praise God that you're here. In some sense, it's probably a spiritual warfare trying to rob us of the joy that we'll surely celebrate when we get here. But oh my, wouldn't it be great if these were the kinds of psalms of meeting with the Lord. So you're going to hear a declaration of wisdom in the first verse and then kind of a poetic illustration of it that we'll walk through in these first three, or first, only three verses of Psalm 133. So here we go. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Conflict 
and war. Let me give you just a couple of contemporary examples. The overflow, a current junta in Niger. A similar kind of overthrow currently taking place in Myanmar. Russia and Ukraine. North Korea and lots of people. (laughs) Democrat and Republican. Some of your family members and you. We could spend the next hour of our time together just simply reflecting on all the places in the world where there is current strife, conflict, and even the kind of conflict that leads to the loss of life. At the very least, leads to deep, lasting wounds. In fact, if I were to sit here and to weigh out the beautiful picture of unity of brothers dwelling together in the first verse of this psalm, against the examples that in my own life and in history and even in today's news where that's not the case, I think I could probably, and this might be my own cynicism that I'm inviting you to see speaking more than anything else, but I think I could probably give you more examples of the latter. I think I could just go on and list all of the conflict and harm that exists in the world right now. And it would be much more difficult, probably, to think of deep and abiding examples of a good and pleasant unity of brothers dwelling together. So, I want you to see a beautiful unity. A beautiful unity. I use that word beautiful. You might be able to to say that this psalm describes a biblical unity, a godly unity, even maybe a Christian unity. I think all of these could be used interchangeably, but I think that the, the psalmist, when he, when, he, when he penned this so poetically, he had in mind an extravagant and abundant beauty to the unity that he was describing. After all, the kind of unity that he was so inspired by, so overwhelmed by, that he sat down and penned a, a song to it. I think that will land on you in a couple of different ways, but at least a couple of them that I'll point out. If you're like me, that lands on you with a great deal of cynicism. Okay, great, unity, sure. Or maybe on the other end, a a kind of idealism. Like, let's do this now. Let's let's get this unity. Why Why aren't we building more unity? And so I want to point out to you what I believe is a beautiful unity, a beautiful unity. So let's, let's walk through these three verses very briefly, and then I think, we can, I think you'll see an illustration of the kinds of beauty in this unity that, that are here for our own encouragement and edification, and even our own celebration, as it would have been the case for this first group of people humming along this psalm on the way up to Jerusalem. Behold. Behold, this is this emphatic poetic language. It's building. It gets... It, it, it gets louder and it has a crescendo. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. One of the first observations I think you see is beautiful unity is both righteous and delightful. He describes a unity with two really powerful attributes. It's good and it's pleasant. Now, more than anything else, you're going to hear me describe unity as something that comes from God. It is not from ourselves, but, but I'll get there in just a moment. At least for now, this this companionship of goodness and pleasantness, it shows up elsewhere, uh, and it's usually to describe the goodness and pleasantness of God. And so I think one of the best things we can do is we kind of walk through, I'll spend quite a bit of time here just describing what this means for us and also helping you see how this helps us, I think, point out counterfeit, fake, false, or at the very least, temporary unities. Unities that will leave us ultimately divided against someone else or at the very least will leave us uh, very, very very disappointed, disillusioned. Good and pleasant, that that word good, tov, it's the same word, in fact, in verse 2. Precious here is, precious oil is is the same word, that goodness, and that goodness is always related to God. 
or even to the goodness of God reflected in creation. The creation story goes along and he says it. Every single day of the, of the creation narrative, we hear God declaring over what he has created. It's good, it's good, it's good, until that word shows up and he says it's not good. Not good what? Not good that the man, the one that he had created, is alone. There was something about the character of God that was evidently somewhat invisible unless he had the fullness of the creation and man and woman. Genesis 1 and 27 tells us this. Is good and then not good. Reflection of God's good character in creation. Think of his fingerprints on his work of art. So this goodness comes from God, but it's not just good. Think good as rightness, righteousness. It's also good that is pleasant. It's desirable. It's pleasurable. Now, I think this is worth pointing out because one of the first things you see in the Psalms and especially the Psalms of Ascent is that the God of the universe commands his people to delight and celebrate. After all, these were psalms of people that were on their way to celebrate feasts that God commanded them to, to celebrate. I, I say that because I know many of you, especially if you're in this room and maybe Christianity is not something you're sure about, when you hear about the commands of God, we almost always kind of have this internal, uh, you know, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death uh, response of like, don't tell me what to do. And, and we immediately assume that the commands of, a, of a God are for shame and fear, and they're bad, and they're hard and difficult. And I want you to see that nothing could be further from the truth. The grace of God is evident, and his commands for us is to delight, to rest, to find comfort, find hope in. We worship a God who demands that we celebrate. Well, what about these awful things that are happening? I know exactly. That, now you get it. Weekly we rest? What? What about the rest of the month? Yeah, I know. You, you, you hear the contrast that God says, you're going to stand apart from the world in the way that you rest and the way that you delight and you celebrate. And that includes not only that the goodness of God is on display in this unity, but the pleasurableness. Because many of you would think of something that's good, but not pleasurable. We could all think of things that are like, okay, this is good and I know it's good for me, right? You can think of a vegetable, that you know is good for you and is not as pleasurable as something else you really like to eat. On the other hand, think of something that is very pleasurable for you to eat, one of your favorites, and is not necessarily good, at least not good in any quantity more than an ounce, right? Like, we can think of things that we think are right and righteous and good and not necessarily something we enjoy, and we can think of things that we enjoy that are not necessarily righteous or good, good for us or the people around us. And notice the unity that he's describing that flows from the character of God is both. And the unities that we will experience in this life, I believe, will err on one side or the other and will be a false, counterfeit, disappointing type of unity. A unity built on either us and our team is right and yet excludes other people. Immediately cuts out people from enjoying the kind of pleasure or right, delight that comes with it. Or the kind of unity that, that prizes the pleasure or enjoyment even over what is true and righteous and good. And notice that true unity, beautiful unity, is righteous and delightful. It flows from the nature of God. You and I have a difficulty managing those two things, doing what's righteous and what's pleasurable. Thank God that that is not the case with him. His character is perfectly righteous and perfectly full of pleasure and delight. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so beautiful community, true, biblical, Christian, community around the grace that God gives us in Christ is righteous and delightful. When we miss those things as they flow as a gift from God's good character, it turns into something else. You see, a, a, a unity that's built on being right is going to look more like assimilation. It's going to look more like uniformity. And a unity that we might experience about things that are pleasurable and nice and right will simply look more like proximity. We just happen to associate and here's the problem. We mistake uniformity, the air of rightness over what is delightful, and proximity, the, the error of, de, of, of valuing delight more than righteousness for beautiful unity. These are fake and counterfeit unities, and they create fake and counterfeit 
communities. Now, this is just a, a, a Latin nerdiness that will kind of help you think through this, but the word community is, is such an interesting word. Uh, the Latin roots of community, both calm and unis, both mean the same thing. They both mean together. Uh, that is, unity is together. A community is the people together, but literally it means the together together. And so this is a deep value for us as a church, that in the gospel, because of Christ, we have a together together. And counterfeits will challenge and destroy unity. So I want to point out some counterfeits and some challenges. Counterfeits and challenges. The first I'll point out is simply the challenges. Think of some of the greatest challenges to real and deep, beautiful unity, and therefore beautiful community. I'll give you one. Fear. Fear. That is there will always be someone in any group of people that, if we're honest with ourselves, intimidates us, scares us. Now, it may be because they're intentionally terrifying kinds of people. But often, as destructive as that might even be, often our fear of them has nothing to do with them. Uh, being intimidated by them has nothing to do with them and has everything to do with our own fear, our own insecurity. And a beautiful unity, a beautiful community starts to cast out that kind of fear with love. Here's another one, envy or covetousness. In any group of people, there's always someone that we really wish we had what they had or we really wish we could take what they possess, whether it's a characteristic they walk around with personally or an actual possession that we really wish they didn't have and we wish we did. And that will cause us to dismiss some people, we'll distance ourselves from them, we won't care about getting to know them. And while fear would cause us to hide, then envy will ultimately cause us to push away. And here's the last one I thought was really helpful. Someone pointed out to me is lust. By lust, I mean the desire to use someone to get some certain thing. Now, typically people use that term to describe uh, sexual desire, a great desire to have someone sexually. But, but the Bible is happy to talk about lust even more deeply and more honestly. That is that any desire to use a person, objectify a person, to get something from them. And so in community, one of the things that can destroy us is the desire to have someone and use them to get something. And of course, that can be sexually, but it can also just be relationally. When someone else has all the attention in the room, do you find yourself wanting to either shut them up or take their spot or even worse, use them, be friends with them? You gravitate towards those people that benefit you the most? Do you push the people away that are the most difficult? That is a form of lust and it destroys community. It's a fake, at the very least, it's a fake kind of community that exists because those kinds of relationships aren't about love and sacrifice and care. They're ultimately about us and they use other people so think of that as, a, as the challenges to unity. But now think of a couple of counterfeit communities, fake communities. Fake communities that, that look good and seem good, but at the very least are simply temporary. Remember I told you the first one is uniformity. Think of this as a forced assimilation. When people start to look, talk, and act the same, and that becomes the basis of their inclusion, you're at a, a less than beautiful kind of community. And what you have there is not real community, what you have there is affinity. Oh, well, we have these things in common. Now, these things can and should be used well. They're good, they can be used for many different things. Many different teams can be, can be used for many different purposes, but ultimately it will leave you lacking because it always excludes someone else. The kind of unity that you think you feel always comes at the expense of someone else. And in that kind of group, that kind of affinity group, you always have the group of people that you don't like that are always shut out. And so it will always be limited. It will never be truly delightful and pleasing and beautiful. It's uniformity. You just look, talk, and act the same. As such, if you think of it this way, 
the basis of it is a form of self-righteousness, legalism, or law, an adherence to a certain set of behaviors. Now, there's lots of really great examples of this. Genesis 11 is probably one of the best biblical examples. One of the first inclinations of people in Genesis 11 was to build a massive tower, a tower called Babel. And boy, let me tell you about let me tell you about the affinity they had. You know, let me tell you about the uniformity they had. They all spoke the same language. And they were all united in a particular mission. That was to build a kind of structure that would get them to God. They would get their way to God. And that seems like a good idea. And yet, evidently, that was an act of rebellion against God. Because after all, beautiful community is received rather than achieved. Beautiful community is a grace that comes, as we see here, in three different ways, down. It comes from, it comes apart from ourselves to us. Assimilation or affinity and uniformity are all achieved. They're all, quite literally, contrived. For a particular purpose, you can build a team, you can, so, you, know, you can structure a group of people for any given purpose. But man, not only in Genesis 11, but there's some really great unity and, uni- excuse me, there's some really great uniformity and affinity in the, in the history of the world's dictatorships. And we have to be careful about that kind of unity. We have to be careful about that kind of false community. Let me give you an example. The unity of a nation's spirit, and I quote, the unity of a nation's spirit and will are worth far more than the freedom of the spirit and the will of an individual. And that the higher interests involved in the life of the whole must here set the limits and lay down the duties of the interests of the individual. That's powerful, isn't it? That our our individual desires would keep us from the duty that we have for the whole. That's powerful and compelling. What if I just told you, and you're okay to throw up on the floor now, that I just quoted Adolf Hitler? Right? It's like, yeah, right? Like, oh, because after all, if there was ever a historical figure that united the German people, it would have to be Adolf Hitler. But you get the idea? You see how like gathering together a team just because they're your team and you think you're right ultimately excludes and if it gets pushed with enough power and energy starts to destroy other people. Beautiful community is not contrived by ourselves against others. Beautiful community is received. It's a gift. It's something you have no power over because it is a gift of grace. So if that's the the counterfeit on one extreme, think of the counterfeit on the other as just simply a fake unity, false or shallow unity, proximity, if you will. And this kind of fake unity, avoidance might be the symptom. How we just don't talk about those things. It's just too painful. We We don't discuss those things, usually because there's not enough trust. After all, you don't trust enough people to, if you don't trust enough people to, to disagree about a particular thing, you'll just avoid it. And so this kind of shallow community is is not really community, it's proximity. And it, it falls into the same kind of prideful failure, is that it tries to contrive what can only be received. It tries to build, at least in this case, around being pleasurable or pleasant or delightful, to the to the detriment of what's right and good. It's a false unity. And under the surface, right under the surface. There is deep anger, hurt, and disunity. It just never, it never intentionally bubbles out. It only bubbles out on accident. And so think of these as barriers. And think of these as counterfeits as we walk through a beauty. Because after all, I just laid out a case for, like, who wants those things? I mean, I did use, like anyone else, I did use Hitler or Nazis as kind of, once you do that, there's really no reason in talking anymore. But I did it. And you would naturally go, fine, that's, I don't want those things. You're right. I don't want shallow, meaningless relationships. In fact, this is built into our DNA. We're built for community. We're built as relational creatures. We die, quite literally, apart from these kinds of relationships. So how do we get it? How do we get the kind of unity that's beautiful, that's both righteous and delightful? 
And I think there's three different things we find in these three different verses. First and foremost, beautiful unity is the righteous and, both together, righteous and delightful result of adoption. Look at that word there. Behold how good and pleasant it is. That sounds great. When brothers, that's quite literally the word brothers, of course it could be translated family. You'll even see, I think, in the NIV or other translations, the people of God. Brethren, if you've got uh, another translation. But the idea of brothers and sisters. Family. Family. People drawn together. Now, historically, this might just have been because one of those, one of those particular celebrations of feasts where David would have been particularly, like, I don't know, uh, writing psalms and hymns, particularly overwhelmed by the grace of God, was that after David was anointed king, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah weren't united. It wasn't until later that they were united, and then more and more, as these feasts went on, they experienced a great time of prosperity, where, where these feasts that were held in Jerusalem would have included more and more and more of the tribes of Israel and Judah. They would have all gathered, and this probably is what inspired David to go, how beautiful is this? How good is it? The, the people we used to be fighting against, the people that in our own history of our own story were betraying and hating one another, now we're all gathering to meet with God, to experience the kind of grace that he gives us. And so beautiful community, beautiful unity, sacred unity, gracious unity comes from adoption. It comes from being included in a community that you have, re- you have received rather than you have achieved. That is that we believe that the God of the universe is a choosing and adopting God. The story of the Bible is of people who wandered and rebelled against God, and God, out of those nations, quite literally, chose an, a man by the name of Abraham, changed his identity, name, and trajectory by giving a promise. I'm going to bless you. Right? The first Jew was a Gentile, called out of the nations, becomes a chosen person, not for his own blessing, but he says, I'm going to bless you so that through you the nations will be blessed. We believe that story is a story of the lineage of our Redeemer, Jesus, who comes to be all that we could not be and to unite us to where the last story of the Bible ends up around a throne where all the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around worshiping Jesus. Why? We read it just a moment ago in the call to worship that God has given us by adoption he has done something. He has included us as we were outsiders. He has set his love upon us, not because we were great, Deuteronomy tells us, but because he, his love was great. And real beautiful unity comes from knowing that the thing you hold in common with the people around you is outside your control. Like family. Now hang on, I know. Uh, There's a phrase I hear people use, and I want to contend to you, it's a redundancy. You'll hear people use the phrase, dysfunctional family. And biblically speaking, I want you to know that's a redundancy. Those are the same words. Uh, If if you read the Bible, that's it. Family is dysfunctional, dysfunctional is family. In fact, you should read the book of Genesis. If you think your family is a mess, read the book of Genesis, right? And read the story of our family, of how our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain, killed a great-great-great-great-great-uncle, Abel. Right? I don't know, maybe murder is a part of your family's story more recently, but it's at least more distantly in our story. And then you see that story played out where, where family turns against one another. It's meant to be a demonstration of just how awful sin is. Sin destroys even the relationships that you think would be the closest, the relationships you need, the relationships that are supposed to be the most meaningful and formative and life-giving. Because of sin can be the opposite. And I know for many of you that is your story. And I know when I say unity is like family, I know many of you, you see your own family, you're like, forget that. Like, right? and, and I get it, but, but at least let me contend to you that the possibility of your, of your own cynicism towards that is because at least at some point in time you had wished your family was more. We believe that that's actually written into our being, that we desire that these kinds of close familial relationships are good and God gives us as a gift. And I know many of you could tell this story so well, or or so badly, depending on how you describe it, of how sin has wrecked it. And yet, maybe even for you, the story of redemption might be best told in familial language, that the God of the universe is a father. Not like your broken father and mother, 
right? Not like our broken father and mother, Adam, who throws his wife and turns on God and throws him under the bus, right? And not like Cain, who, right? You get the idea. Not like, not like even our own stories of maybe even our more immediate family. But unity comes from the kind of relationship that's outside of your control, family. And hear the good news that in Christ, you and I have been invited and accepted and fully received into a family that we did not deserve to belong to. And Jesus, our big brother, has chased us into the far country to draw us back to the Father who runs to meet us, tackles us to welcome us, and says to you and to me, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And like the prodigal says to you and to me, put a ring on this son or daughter's finger. Put some good clothes, right? Let's celebrate. Beautiful unity comes from adoption. How good and pleasant it is when brethren, brothers, family dwell together. Here's a second thing. Beautiful unity is a sacred calling. All right, this is where it gets weird, but fun. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And I'm trying to read that as emphatically and demonstrably as possible because you can see that building in the poetic language, right? Did you hear it? It's like, oh, unity. What's this beautiful unity like, you might ask? What is it like? Tell me, David, what it's like. It's like oil. No, 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 not just like oil. It's like oil on the head. Oh, like anointing, sacred. Oh, beautiful. No, 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 no. It's like oil on the head of Aaron. What? Our great, the first great high priest? It's like the oil on the head of Aaron the priest running down to his beard. 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 It's on his clothes. You get the idea? You can hear the, again, I know it's cheesy. I get it. But that's the psalm. David's saying, it's so, it's, it's all, it's excessive. It's abundant. It's like, who would do this? And I, God bless some of you, uh, the the hygiene habits of, of the 21st century are better than, uh, than they ever have been in all sorts of ways, and I praise God for that. The, the original writers of this would not have had this. But even you know, even you know this, and you have a friend, don't look at them, it's usually him. <laughs> you have a friend who wears too much cologne or perfume or whatever, right? Again, look at me, look at, don't look around, look at me. Let's just let it be me for now, okay? Don't look at anyone. You know that. And, and you in those moments might think, that's a bit excessive. Like, okay. And yet, do you hear this, like, this picture of perfume? If you want to, you can read Exodus chapter 30. You get a picture of the type of perfume that was created. It was a special and sacred perfume Beginning in verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, take the finest spices, liquid myrrh, and that gives it a, a quantity, sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, and aromatic cane, cassia, and, and measures out this kind of special anointing oil. You shall make these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil, and with it you shall anoint the tent, a meeting, the tent of testimony, the table, the utensils, and then he gets down, and then you shall anoint, verse 30, Aaron and his sons. Aaron, who would serve as the first high priest. And he says, it shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. Oh no. And you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy. It shall be holy to you. And whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The kind of unity that's beautiful and powerful is a sacred calling. It's an anointing. And not just an anointing, an abundant, maybe even excessive. Excess, I mean, can you imagine that? Like I, can, can you can just imagine someone you might know who shows up with like so much cologne or anointing oil, it's running down their clothing, right? Can you, and, and just imagine for just a moment, like, that's, wow, that's excessive. That's a bit much, right? Like, hey, the beard oil is just a little dab do you, man. That's not right. <laughs> and yet, and yet he said, like, no, no, that's not what, that's not what unity's like. The beautiful unity that God gives us here, it's much more abundant and excessive than that. And anyone who would have seen Aaron and his sons anointed with that much excessive, abundant, and 
you heard it, right? Aromatic, sweet-smelling. Anyone who saw or smelled that would know, oh, there's something going on here. And so, friend, unity, the beautiful unity that is offered here comes from God as an anointing and a sacred calling. And that means for those of us who begin to think about the unity that we want to experience and the household of faith with other Christians, with other people who have experienced this kind of adoption, also now have a ministry. The New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul are full of different accounts where he says, do everything you can pursue a bond of peace, pursue unity in the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a powerful thing. Even one of, the, one of the prayers of Jesus is that the world would see and know that Jesus is the Christ because I and the Father are one, and he says, make them one. Let their oneness be so powerful that people see it and go like, that's not from this world. And so there was an anointing. There's a powerful anointing. There is a, a gift that comes not from ourselves. And Peter says it this way about you and me, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. Friend, if you have heard and received by faith the gift of Jesus and his gospel, you have a sacred calling. You have a sacred and beautiful unity with those who have also been called out of darkness and into, into marvel, marvelous light. And friend, own it. You smell. You should smell. You, and, you look, and look, that's excessive. You seem a little bit, I mean, you went a little heavy on the oil there. A little too much perfume. Do you get the idea? Do you hear the picture? Can you see the woman caught in her sin kneeling before Jesus? breaking over the alabaster jar and pouring an excessive amount of oil to anoint his feet. So much so that the people said, you could have, man, you could have fed, you could have fed so many poor people with that. Well, it was an anointing. It was a sacred abundance and excessiveness. Hebrews 2 says that this about Jesus, this priesthood and specialness we have. This is the reason that he that is Jesus was made to be like them or us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and service of God, in order that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Friend, unity costs. After all, that's what the high priest Aaron would have done. He would have overseen the sacrifices made to atone for sin, to be made right with God in Zion, to meet with their creator, to be restored. He also would have he would have overseen the sacrifices, you can read through Leviticus, of, that were made to restore one another or to store people to one another. Beautiful unity is a sacred calling that comes at great cost and great sacrifice. A sacred calling that we believe we have as priests, a holy people, not because we're special, but because Jesus is merciful. Here's the third verse. You see it. Beautiful unity is a miraculous provision. The poetic language gets even deeper. It is like the dew of Hermon. Now, now Hermon, you can Google this, is about uh, 9,200 feet above sea level. So pretty pretty remarkable. It's a mountain. Get snow on it. Um, but then he uses poetic language. It says the dew, it's, it's on the mountain, and it falls on the mountains of Zion. Well, if you do the geography there, um, you're going to see that Mount Hermon is way up north in between modern-day Syria and Lebanon, and Jerusalem's way down here. And just, I mean, just the math of this doesn't work out. It doesn't fall down into the hill and then run up to Jordan, or, or, or run through the Jordan and run up to Zion. It's poetic language. The people traveling would have known this. Oh, Mount Hermon. Oh, the snow-capped, the, the dew-covered mountain. The mountain that miraculously, again, this is before meteorologists exist, it always has moisture that time of year. It's just like a miraculous amount of moisture that makes it green and fertile. And he says, that's what this is like. Not only is the beautiful unity a brotherhood, an adoption that God gives, not only is it a sacred calling, an anointing, but it's also a provision. It's a miraculous provision that God gives that's outside of our control. It's like the dew of a mountain. You have no power over the amount of moisture or you have no power over the amount of snow that falls that fills the rivers, right? You have no power over those things because so they're out of our control. And yet, 
because, look at this, there, Zion, Jerusalem, there the Lord has commanded that kind of miraculous provision, such that it would give what? Life forevermore. Beautiful unity is a miraculous provision. Let me give you a couple of practical ways to respond to this, and then, and then we'll be, even a practical way we'll respond even today. First, pray for a vision of beautiful community that comes from Christ and that you would be a minister of it. So if you're in this room and that kind of unity that I just described, like, oh, people just, they just know they're in a supernatural family and have this supernatural calling to love and care for the, the community and, oh, and they have this provision, like, that sounds great. And I know maybe you have the kind of cynicism like I do, like, well, okay, forget that. That's ridiculous. Well, then join me. Repent of unbelief with me and pray that God would at least give us a vision of it. It would give us a vision of it. Pray that God would begin to let us see this, that the priesthood, the chosenness of God, not, uh, not by any of our own merits, but because of the goodness and grace of God in Christ. He has included us in his forever family, life rather than death, forever and ever. Let us get a vision of that. I heard one pastor say it this way, get a vision for how the church is the kingdom of God as an embassy as we are ambassadors but as a seed that will be fully fruitful when jesus returns to make all things new the church now she's a mess i get it that's what makes this a grace and i know for many of you you haven't experienced this or haven't even seen it so join me in at least praying that we could dream about it but think of it this way the local church is the end of racism in its seed form not perfect we need tons of grace, right? After all, it's, it, the minute we look away from our adoption, the minute we look away from God's provision, His miraculous calling, it will, will tend towards affinity. We'll just gather people to look, talk, and act like us. Think of this, the church is the end of sexism in seed form. The local church is the end of misogyny in seed form. The local church is the end of elitism Think of any destructive ism that you can think of. The, the church is in seed form, the end of those things. Not perfectly, because after all, that unity only comes by what Jesus brings and what Jesus finishes. And yet, pray for it. Envision it. Envision, imagine what it would look like to be so overwhelmed with the beauty of our adoption, with our sacred calling, and God's provision for us in Christ, that the dividing walls of hostility begin to fall down. Because after all, that's what the New Testament tells us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the church is the end of factions and personality worship and demagoguery and seed form. He tells the Colossians, he tells the Galatians especially this, that, that the church is the end of all sort of like ethnocentrism, sexism, and elitism and seed form. Pray for, long for this. This is in seed form. What you and I have in Christ is in seed form what will come to full fruition when Jesus comes back and fixes all the bustedness. And that helps us. That helps us to, to look away from simply being an affinity group. Praise God for affinity groups, right? Join a biker club. I don't care. Just don't get that, mis don't mix up your biker club or your team with this beautiful supernatural community. Pray for it. Number two, bear one another's burdens. This beautiful unity happens when you see the sacred calling to love and care for what God has given us in Christ. I'll go first. I struggle with anxiety. This is new for me. I went from being uh, just fearless or on the surface fearless, and then I got old real fast, and oh my goodness, everything's going to fall apart. I struggle with anger. I have a debilitating fear of failure. That's my story. A beautiful unity will happen when you start to carry my, carry my, carry my burdens. Now, it's your turn. Now you go. Bear one another's burdens. It's hard not to have a powerful unity with the people you love and care for and you genuinely want what's best for them. Here's another one. Admit the truth about your team. Admit the truth about your team you will have to sacrifice your lesser unities, fake, counterfeit, or at the very least just temporary, for the sake of true, beautiful, eternal, 
and biblical biblical unity. You will have to give up things that are valuable to you for things that are ultimate. Did you hear that in there? The Lord has commanded it. There's a blessing, and it's forevermore. Forevermore. And unity at the expense of another group, by definition, is not unity. Or at the very least, it's limited. So see the limits of your team. See your social construct. See what your team was built to accomplish. Admit its strengths and weaknesses. So you got a political team. Cool. It might be good for getting some votes here and there. But it is not ultimate. And most of the problems that happen are when you confuse temporary teams with eternal ones that give life. Admit the limits of your team. Tell the truth about your team. Your team might be good at a few things. might have accomplished some things. But it always comes at a cost. Because after all, if it's temporary, and if you're the, if you're the gatekeeper, then you'll always build it in your own image. So, the church is not, an, in this sense, all-inclusive. There are ins and outs. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate. Through him and him alone do we experience the kingdom. It's just the good news is, he's the one who gets to say who's in and out. The problem is when we start saying who's in and out. He's given us the keys to do just that, but when we start wielding the keys based on our own preference, affinity, you get it? Uniformity, that's a problem. So we'll start to look alike. But that's because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. May we start to have a supernatural similarity, not with each other, but with Jesus. Start to sound, look, and talk, not just like each other, coincidentally, accidentally, idiosyncratically, but we start to look, talk, and act like him. See the limits of your team. Be honest with yourself about who your team excludes. Be honest about it. Don't expect the kind of unity from the world that can only come from Jesus, our high priest. He is our intercessor who has done for us what we could not to welcome us into the presence of God to give life forevermore. He is our Zion. He is our Jerusalem. We are now the people of God, the sanctuary. The sanctuary is not a building, it's a people that now God dwells with. Our hearts have been changed from hearts of stone to now we have hearts of flesh that beat for his purpose and his kingdom. And don't expect the kind of unity from the world that can only come from Jesus, our high priest. That kind of unity is at best temporary. I'll give you the best illustration I know of. Mid-90s, I was in middle school, and I went to a, fairly, a small, fairly poor school, and, uh, and as a part of our kind of world, world geography, we were going through these different continents, and then we would study different countries if they existed on these different continents. And my favorite was to devoted a ton of time to the continent of Africa. Here's the problem. In this kind of, kind of under-resourced school, uh, all we had to, to, uh, to do some of this was world books. Those are encyclopedias that come out every so often. Now, if you don't know what an encyclopedia is, you've never seen it, it's like the internet if someone tried to print, print it off, right, in alphabetical order. And so we had to give this, uh, do a research project and give a presentation on a country in the continent of Africa. And so I got to give a presentation on the country of Zaire, now, this is mid-90s, so I'm reading a world book, an encyclopedia that was not from the mid-90s. We did, couldn't afford that one. I was reading the old one. And so I got to stand in front of this class of people and wax eloquent from this world book, right? This world book to, to talk about this, this nation that at that moment was ceasing to exist, so Zaire is not a thing anymore. It is now the Democratic Republic or Republic of Congo, okay? And, and what a weird thing. And I was excited about it, as you can imagine. I just learned about this new beautiful place. I'm like, this is amazing. Uh, it, again, that part of the world book had left out some of the ill effects of the dictatorship that, that developed after that world book was published. But you can Google all that later. But get this. I'm standing here out of a, out of a world book going on and on about a nation that at that time was ceasing to exist. Let me connect the dots for you if you haven't. We will regularly read out of the book of the world and go on and on about teams, nations, and unity that is on its way into extinction. 
rather than experiencing the beautiful unity that comes from being adopted into God's family by grace, rather than speaking about the beautiful unity that comes not from ourselves, but as a sacred priesthood that God has set for you and me as a message to the world, rather than experiencing the beautiful unity that comes from knowing that Jesus will provide forevermore life. Get it? Don't expect the kind of unity from the world that can only come from Jesus as our high priest. Now let me just add one caveat before we wrap up. This unity is meant to exist in the local church, and I want to just stop for a minute and commend you. The Lord has blessed our church in the last nine years with a powerful unity. And I mean that, again, not, not perfectly, but I have experienced more of that, and a, a, an excitement for Jesus above all, a desire to know and to speak about Jesus, our high priest, above all other things. And here's what I know. None of us have the same politics in this room. None of us have the same worldview. None of us have the same opinions about private school, public school, homeschool. Get it? None of us have the same opinions about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. None of us have the same opinions. If you're looking for that, you're looking for a worldly team. And that's great. It might be good for a thing, but it's temporary. And I have just been blessed by the kind of powerful unity. And here's the thing. I would love to tell you, well, here's why that's happened. As though, again, as though we've contrived it. But all I can do is say how good and pleasant it is that God has allowed us to see this. And you know this. The experience of that kind of unity, like, like David would have known, comes and goes in seasons. You experience more of it in one moment, less of it in another. And all I know to tell you is thank you. I, I have no, like there's no, there's no exhortation other than, friends, keep doing what you're doing. Right? Like Paul, like, like Paul tells the Thessalonian church, keep abounding in the work you're already doing. This is a beautiful unity that God's given us. And unity, when it seems impossible, if that unity seems like it's going to fracture, then here's my encouragement and my exhortation. When unity is impossible, multiply for mission rather than dividing for a faction. When unity seems impossible or unreachable or unattainable or at least not feasible, multiply for mission rather than dividing for faction. Here's what I mean by that. The, the book of Acts gives us an example. We see uh, Paul and Barnabas going on these church planting missions and, and, and these missionary journeys. They come back and John Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark, um, for some reason abandoned them, like went home, got homesick. He's like, man, I, I'm done with this. This is crazy. And most of us are like, yeah, I can see that. And so then when they're sent out, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out, it says they had a sharp division. They, they had a sharp disagreement. Paul was like, I'm taking Silas. I'm not taking John Mark. That guy, he left us this is too important, right? We can't go with him. And Barnabas is like, essentially, you know, again, we have to figure that it took him with him. And so notice what they did. They, they multiplied. That is, the gospel went in two separate directions. They didn't see eye to eye, but then the gospel went in two separate directions. I cannot tell you, even in my own short life, the times where I've seen in the local church, not people multiplying with mission, but one group of people going, let's go do this, and the other people just digging in their heels to do nothing. And so, friend, think, multiply for mission. Don't divide for faction. And that's one of the ways you know, right? Like when, when, when you see the, hey, okay, we seem to be disagreeing here. I think maybe God's calling us to multiply to two different places, two different people, right? You get the idea? We have these separate missions and the gospel's gonna go out. When you don't see that, it's almost always dividing for faction. Now, those of you who've been a part of a dysfunctional church, everything I just described, you're like, oh yeah, I could write a book on that. And you should. Err on the side of multiplying for mission rather than dividing for faction. Here's the last tip, right? Bear one of those burdens. Pray for this vision. Admit the truth about your team. Here's the last one. Share a meal across differences. Invite someone who disagrees with you to have a meal in light of the grace that you've experienced in Christ. Share a meal across differences. Now, that's not original with me. I heard an author write that in the 90s, but, but it gets even better than that. Because in a moment here, the way we're going to respond we're going to respond to this beautiful psalm about beautiful unity is we're going to share communion together. 
and we are going to meet, I know this is a mystery, we are going to meet with the Lord at a table. We're going to meet with the Lord. Jesus himself will meet us at a table. And it's not a measuring table, it's a banqueting table. He meets with us. And friend, if there ever was a meal that was shared across difference, it is this meal. Oh, you think you can't agree with those other people on the other side of the political aisle or, or your family? or, like, or those, right? if, you think, if you think you have nothing in common with them, you have never seen the holy and majestic and righteous God of the universe who has nothing in common with you and me. In all the ways he is righteous and perfect, you and I are rebellious and sinful. And yet what? We meet with him at a meal across that difference. And that meal is met because Jesus, our high priest, has come and given himself. In just a moment, we're going to be invited to the table and declare a mystery. Someone will hold a, a little piece of, a, a wafer, a piece of bread, and say to you in, in a majestic and mir miraculous way, the body of Christ is broken for you. You're going to take it and eat it. And then someone's going to offer you a cup and say, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And I want you to hear the psalm and the unity that we get to experience, even right now, in seed form, of the kingdom that is to come. Can you hear the psalm? How beautiful. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the blood that flowed from the crown of thorns down the head to the beard, to the beard of Christ, flowing down the beard to the naked body. It's like the water that flowed from his side, symbolizing his final death on our behalf. You get it? That's the beautiful unity that you and I get to receive by faith. Now, before I pray, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 11, the admonition to take this meal seriously, to see the mysterious unity that we're offered in it. He says that I received from the Lord, the Apostle Paul tells this church like us, what he is delivering to us, that on the night he was betrayed, I love that, don't you? It starts with a disunity. It starts with like, okay, this is the night where these people were going to let him down. Are you saying he gave himself at a table for the people who deserved it? Oh no, friend. He gave himself at a table for the people that did not. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and we had given, given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you, and I do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he said he took the cup, and after supper, he took this cup and said, this is the cup of a new covenant that is in my blood. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The blood that flowed down his body, the water that flowed from his side the death that accomplished what you and I could not. So he says, whoever eats and drinks of these things in an unworthy manner does so to his condemnation. So let's pray together as we reflect on these things. Jesus, thank you so much. You are our great high priest. Thank you for Aaron, and I thank you for the anointing that he received to intercede for his people. And I thank you even more that there was another who came. There was another, a greater high priest who interceded for his people. And not just with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, with his own life. Thank you, Lord, that that gives us the prospect of a beautiful kind of supernatural unity. We know we don't feel that, and we have no right to expect it, certainly not in the world, but thank you that even in this moment, in this building, in this gathering, as you're present with your people at these tables, we are united by faith with the Father because the Son, Jesus, has, as our high priest, interceded for us. In the place of our sin, he has died. And in the place of blessing, he has placed us. So help us to reflect. Help us to confess. So right now, I'm going to give us just a few seconds. Confess your sin to the Lord. If there's secret, hidden sin, blatant, obvious, repetitive sin, would you even now just confess it to the Lord? Knowing that he's going to meet you at the table, confess it to the Lord. Maybe this is even the first time to admit 
your own frailty and weakness and failure. Admit it to the Lord, knowing he'll receive you. Now help us to receive by faith the focus of this meal. It's not ourselves or our sin. It's upon the sacrifice that was sufficient to cover it all. It's upon the priest who came and atoned for all of our sin, giving his own life as a sacrifice to take our place, a propitiation, an expiation, an absorbing of all that is evil and a casting out of all that is broken. Might we receive by faith the beauty that is offered here. For some in this room, maybe if they're not Christian, uh, allow them to pass over this. This is not the time. Uh, Allow them to instead just observe a mystery. After all, it would just be an unsatisfying snack of a cracker and grape juice. But for those of us whose eyes have been opened to how we have now been united with the God of the universe, universe by faith, we have been adopted into his family, we've been called into a special anointing, and now we have been given a a blessed, life-giving provision forever in Jesus. Might with the eyes of faith we receive these elements as a picture of the grace that you've given us and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. We thank you for this. We ask that you would help us to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.